Welcome to The Real Deal Podcast, where we talk to Indiana music professionals about their careers who have been very successful, or as we call them, The Real Deal. My name is Rick Granlund. I'm the Director of Bands and Performing Arts Department Chair at North Central High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. Today we welcome Mr. Steve Pratt, Retired Director of Bands at Indiana University, to the podcast. So thanks for talking with us today, um, Mr. Pratt, and um, I uh, really appreciate your time and I'm looking forward to our to our discussion here. I was talking to Candy um, last night about this, just kind of looking forward to it. And we were trying to, I was trying to remember back to the first time I, that I got to talk with you or see you work. And I, my first memory is um, when I was in college at the IMEA conference, um, you were clinicking a band and a real kind of laid back format. It was like an IMEA non-competitive sort of thing and a kind of a demonstration. And I know you did that for a number of years, but that's my first memory of you. Of course, I didn't get to talk to you because you were busy. But then um, in 1994, I went to the Summer Conducting Symposium, I think was the name of it, that you guys had there on the IU campus. Mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, just a really fun, I think it was three days. Is that how long that typically was? Yes, that's right. I know you guys did that for a number of years um, and you had different conductors working it. But when I went, it was uh, you and Mr. Kramer. And, uh, you know, I'd been to IU to to visit, but not many times. And then I, um, the summer band was like, like the clinic band. And then we had evening lessons with both you and Mr. Kramer. And as someone, I just finished my second year of teaching. And I just have to tell you, that was, I know you did so many of those, they probably all blend together, but it is, it sticks out of my mind so much because I just had such a good time. Well, um, I, I treasured those, those workshops that we did uh, every year. Usually it was with Ray and I were doing them together. And then after he retired, um, I invited Richard Blatty from Ohio State uh, to continue on with that tradition. But it was just such a wonderful time to see how everybody of different levels of experience, like you, you had had a couple years of experience. Um, there was one time when we had a director from Hawaii. He was an IU grad, but he was in his final year of teaching. And he came to the workshop as a participant. And he said, because I want to make this my best year ever. <laughs> and I just thought that was tremendous. Well, you probably, do you know how many years it went? Do you recall just off the top of your head? Oh, boy. Um, 10, or, 10 or 15, I think, if not more. It was hey, quite a few, yeah. Yeah, I remember getting the little trifold mailing, you know, every year. And, but I, I imagine you met a lot of people that were not, uh, people like me that weren't IU folks that just came, came across your plate just for a few days there. And you may or may not have had much contact with them afterwards. but just quite a few people over that time. And an amazing number. And I, I don't dare start naming names because um, I would forget too many. But if I ever did write down the number of people who became leaders in the profession like you um, and uh, in the high school uh, ranks, not only in Indiana, but across the country, but also some uh, top uh, university level teachers who uh, came through the uh, that workshop and uh, hey we all 
met together and talked through our individual uh, challenges and ate hamburgers together, and it was just a great time. Yeah, and it was in the the older band room, and I remember there was a a photo right by the podium, I believe. Um, was it uh, was it Granger possibly? Was there Hertz a Granger? Granger? Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. right by the right by the podium. So <laughs> yeah, he that, was looking down on us all the time. Did that photo make it to different facilities as you guys changed, or is the photo is that photo long gone now? I think that if if it is gone, it's in repose of storage. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fun memories for me. Um, I'm we're gonna get started here and. I gave you the the main questions ahead of time, and I, I hope you um, are looking forward to that. So I, I mentioned that we kind of, since we're doing Indiana and focusing on our amazing, I think, band history in Indiana and some amazing individuals we have here in our state that I thought it was only fitting that we formatted this like a basketball game. So I know you're probably fairly familiar with basketball being uh, in Bloomington. Oh, yeah. And so we're going to break it down to four quarters. and. Um, kind of get going here. So you could feel free to spend as much time as you want, you know, as we go through the questions. I'm not going to rush you along too much, but I think we're ready to go. So you ready for the first quarter or tip off here? Uh, ready for the whistle. Yep. Uh, all right. So starting out, where, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was actually born in South Carolina and ended up going to high school in South Carolina, but spent most of my growing up years in Cedar Rapids, which was the second largest city in the state of Iowa and had a wonderful um, educational program with top ranked schools and that kind of thing, but only 100,000 people. So it had the advantages of a pretty big town, but still the advantages of not being a major metro area like New York City or Chicago. And so do you remember going there or were you were too young to remember the move to Iowa? Um, I, I was um, three weeks old on the move. Oh, wow. So Because my, my dad had just um, been discharged from uh, military, from the Army. I was born in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, which is now uh, it's in Columbia, South Carolina. And as soon as I came along, then three weeks later, he, he got his uh, discharge papers and so went back to Iowa where he and my mom grew up. And so same elementary school throughout growing up, not, not a lot of moving or anything like that. And Right, the- until, of course, my <laughs> the end of my sophomore year in high school, which is if you're going to choose what's probably not the easiest time to move in a high school kid's career, uh, going into their junior year, that's exactly when we moved across the country to um, the state of South Carolina. Okay, well, we'll hold on that hold on that for just a moment. So back back to the Iowa days. At what point in time did you get to start playing an instrument for the first time? Well, it was in the fourth grade. Um, the uh, the school actually offered instrument lessons as early as third grade, Um, but uh, my parents didn't allow me to do it at that point, which was fine. And um, in the the summer after third grade, after they had said no, 
there was an accordion salesman who came down the street selling accordions on lessons to the local accordion store. And some kid named Jerry down the street had already signed up. And um, so this accordion salesman came and my parents listened to the spiel and to the great advantage of my further career felt that they simply couldn't afford the accordion lessons and so said no to that. I thought this was going to get really super interesting. <laughs> Have well, you, did you ever thank, did you ever thank them for that decision later? <laughs> well, I actually used that decision to my advantage in the fourth grade as leverage saying you said no in the third grade and you said no to accordion. So they, then they relented. <laughs> and part of the deal was there were, as you know, you could rent to own instruments and uh, they had a list of the expensive instruments and a list of the cheap instruments, um, which things like flute and clarinet and trumpet or cornet were part of the less expensive to rent. So they said, okay, you can choose one of those on the least expensive side. And a kid named Brad Veely was in my class, and he said that he was going to play the flute because his older sister had started and quit, and his parents were making him play the flute. Couldn't I please join him on that? And, of course, I looked at the list, and flute was on the less expensive side. So that is the primary reason why I chose my first instrument. So you got to play the flute in fourth grade, and you said, was it lessons? Like it was just lessons, and it was just uh, uh, basically, uh, we would think it as flute sectionals. Miss Craig uh, met with us once a week, and so I didn't have ensemble until uh, fifth and sixth grade when my uh, teacher was uh, Roland Mailman. And some people would recognize that name, but only if I spelled it, because um, Mailman was spelled M-O-E-H-L-M-A-N-N. And he's pretty famous in the band director world because he did a lot of arrangements of Bach. And so the Prelude and Fugue in G minor and the Prelude and Fugue in B flat, which a lot of us have conducted, were his compositions, but he was actually my teacher. And in ensemble, there were not only woodwinds and brass and percussion, but also strings. It was one of those mixed things. He went from school to school and uh, was an amazing teacher. Uh, he would pick up his violin and say, who could challenge me on a scale? And so he would pick you out and you would try to beat him on the scale. You can play faster than he could, then you won some kind of a prize. And I still remember him saying, looking at me one day and saying, well, professor, what do you think of this? And I think he called me professor because I was wearing glasses. Um, but little did he know that um, he was predicting something that would happen much, much later uh, through no plan of mine. So do you recall ever beating him in one of his challenges or, or was it just a great motivation for, for all the kids? Let's say that was a great motivation. He was, um, 
an amazing teacher. Uh, he had been teaching in Cedar Rapids for a long time, as, as a, since like 1929. At some point in his career, an unruly student had pushed him down the stairs, and he had a spine injury, which turned into uh, bad rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, so he would come in with his crutches. His, he was in his 50s, um, and his hair had turned white. Um, he conducted the Cedar Rapids Municipal Band for many, many years. It was one of those great city bands that uh, the Midwest uh, was so famous for. He was actually offered the conductorship of the San Diego Symphony Professional Orchestra at the time, but he turned it down because his family was in Cedar Rapids and he wanted to stay there. The other kids sort of referred to him as meanie mailman because he could be stern, but I always thought that he was um, pretty good. Well, those are some great memories. Do you recall at what point later on in your life you realized those arrangements and the connection and how those are played everywhere and those just by many, many groups? Was there a point where you realized how cool that was? Or, Well, there was one time when we had an all-city band festival and the three high schools uh, all nominated their top students. And so in the program, all the kids from Kennedy were in green. All the kids from Washington were listed in red and Jefferson were listed in blue. But part of the deal was in Cedar Rapids, there was a very strong Czech uh, immigrant community. And so they had arranged for people like uh, Vaclav Nelibel to come in as guest soloists or conductors. And they had asked Roland Mailman to do an arrangement of uh, Dvorak that we did as part of that festival. So that was the first time there was an inkling in my brain that uh, he was pretty well known and could sort of rub shoulders with the famous people like uh, Vaclav Nelibel. That's great. And so he, you had him through basically junior high or middle school? Yeah, then um, in Cedar Rapids was a, a little strange is that they, they made you choose um, when you got into advanced junior high uh, between orchestra and band. And my schedule worked out that I was a flute player in their orchestra. And one, the timpanist uh, in the symphony was the teacher there. And so I played in orchestra in junior high, and my first band experience was actually my sophomore year in, at Kennedy High School. And uh, so that was a, an interesting transition, but all the groups were, were very good. And so your, your directors in high school, what memories do you have of, of them or just some certain events that you did that really stand out in your memory? You mentioned the, the Nellie Bell and, and all those good things. Any other things? Well, my, um, the, the band director at my high school was, was a really good musician, and he had developed some very strong band programs in other parts of the state. And he arrived at this brand new high school, and I think I was in the, the building was still only two years old or something when I went there. And that was Kennedy? Kennedy, Kennedy. yeah. Right. And he was, however, not a very good conductor. 
and he always knew it. <laughs> and so I was um, first chair flute um, my sophomore year, and he would often talk to me uh, because we band directors often talk to the flutes. <laughs> and he was so frustrated um, that he couldn't get um, us to go fast enough on a particular piece. So the, the section leaders all sort of got together and said, okay, I'll signal this one in and I'll signal this one in and the trumpet guy would be this. And so we, we made the performances happen, um, sort of helping out a little bit, which uh, I, I thought was interesting, but that also triggered something in my mind that maybe that was something that I could do better. And uh, then we, uh, we moved and I went to Dorman High School in South Carolina and they wouldn't let me in the band because we moved after the band had been in band camp uh, prior to the start of school. So I was only in the choir for that year, uh, my junior year, but um, the choir was wonderful and I got a chance to be a flute soloist on many of the choir things once the choir director found out about me. And she actually um, was a wonderful teacher, but uh, did not like to conduct. She taught from the piano. So because our group was a touring group and quite often gave choir concerts, she needed someone to conduct and tapped me. So in my junior and senior years, I was the assistant conductor of the 400 member traveling Dorman chorus. And we gave performances at Limestone College. We gave performances in Washington DC. I remember um, a performance at Valley Forge over the Armed Forces Network. And I was um, given an opportunity to conduct by her, which really made a difference in, in my life. And then my senior year, they allowed me back in band. So I did both band and choir and had a good band experience with a really strong conductor. And again, someone who I thought, ah, there's the difference. A conductor can make a good deal of difference. So all of those things sort of were working together in preparation in my life. Well, you had, you know, a lot of students, their only conducting opportunity they may get in high schools if they're a drum major. And you had things just pop into your life at age 15, 16, 17 that were nothing like that. And uh, that's, that's really fascinating. So yeah, it, was, it was wonderful. So the conductor at the dorm, you said Dorman High School, yeah. the band director that you said was the, the great conductor. What, who is that? His name was Joseph D. Martin. And actually my senior year ended up being his last year of teaching. He was, like I say, a strong conductor and a tremendous discipline, disciplinarian. Uh, the year I wasn't in the band, they won, uh, I think it was the Cherry Blossom Festival in DC. And I had a wonderful concert band, a really strong marching band. It was all based on 
military tradition. And the, the, the traditions were so strong in terms of that military rigid concept that in the fall, we were all at the extra rehearsal on Monday night and we were on the marching band practice field and Mr. Martin was on top of the hill where he was calling out directions and right in the middle of one of his um, sentences, he collapsed and rolled about five feet down the hill. The band remained at attention and did so for quite a few seconds until the assistant director got his wits about him and said, at ease, at which point a lot of the seniors rushed up to help Mr. Martin. But that shows the kind of discipline that he had. He, he continued to um, conduct the rest of the year, uh, but then he retired from teaching right after that. It was a brain tumor of some kind. But again, that kind of personality makes a big impact on a young person's life. Wow, that's just uh, remarkable. I'm, I'm sure he was proud of you in a, in a weird, weird sort of well, way. I'm sure, I'm sure they told him, you know, later. He, he probably gave us all merits. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's some wonderful memories already with just the, the choral experiences you had and, and then this band director, your senior of high school. Are there, are there any other memories that, that come to mind that you'd just like to share from your high school time in, in both Iowa and well, South Carolina? This is really weird, but at, at, at some point in my um, late, late junior high, early high school time, there was a cellist who would come to fix our church organ and take no fee, but he wanted to play the offertory. And he did several times, and he played cello really well. It was a beautiful sound. And I got in my head that I wanted to play cello. I thought that would be really fun in addition to the flute. And of course, then I went to the high school orchestra director and said, I'd really like to play cello. Do you have an instrument that I could borrow for a while? And he said, no, but I have a viola. And he was thinking in terms of then I would turn into a violist at, at his high school program. So I, I, borrowed an instrument and took uh, viola lessons for a year with Mrs. Wolfsburg, who uh, was from the symphony and was able to play in a string quartet with really easy arrangements and that kind of thing. And had never played in an orchestra on viola. I had, of course, on flute. Well, then we moved and Dorman High School, which now has a fine orchestra, at that point did not have. And we were in that district. And so my mom, who was pretty naive about those kinds of things, said, well, okay, you can't, you, there's not an orchestra for you to play in. I'll make a phone call. So she called up the Spartanburg Symphony, and she mentioned the magic word. My son plays viola. And so they said, have him come to a rehearsal. And I, they put me, I think, third or fourth chair, and I'd never played in an orchestra before. And the first piece was the introduction to Act Three, Lohengrin, where the viola starts actually in the treble clef, which I had never done either. I'd done around alto clef. 
And so I faked my way through that. The basic thing that happened is I moved down from fourth chair to ninth chair, but there was a 10th chair person. And so I got the wonderful opportunity for two years to play in a semi-pro orchestra, which the best players were all faculty in the Converse College and Furman University uh, ranks and play really great literature. And since I was in the back of the viola section, I was sitting near the great brass players, including one person who had been in the Cincinnati Symphony retired and was still able to play. So I heard a lot of tuba being in the back of that viola section. But it was an absolutely fantastic time. And I grew a lot as a violist, but I just loved being a part of that. So I, I had a good high school band experience. I played in the Spartanburg Wind Ensemble, which was a, a mostly adult group that played. I had great playing opportunities. And um, with uh, all of that in a really weird package, don't you think it was an unusual package? But it was great for me. <laughs> yeah, it's just really like you couldn't ever plan something like that. And then for your parents to move going into your junior year and then where you end up, like what's going to be offered there is so so dependent on you know where the job was for your for your family and things like that it's just oh, exactly and and actually you know talking with the counselors i had two senior years because of the different level of academics um in my junior year i was with the seniors and in my senior year i was with the seniors um to to have the right fit with where I was in math and, and all of that business. So it was that was an interesting time. And so we've talked about some of the kind of hints towards your conducting future and and just being a leader in the group. Um, but were there ever any other did you just always want to be a teacher at some at that point or were there other things you were considering? Well I, I always loved history. I know you love history too. And I thought well for a long time that I would probably want to be a social studies teacher, which really was history for me. I would have pushed it that direction. Um, but the music thing started to loom. I had the, the chance to, to guest conduct my junior high orchestra once or twice. Uh, I guest conducted the choir, like I mentioned at the high school. I took um, pre-college music at Converse College, some music theory and that kind of thing. And the, um, one of the teachers came and said, we're putting together a, an ensemble um, of all of the pre-college students at the high school level. Could you conduct them? Well, sure, I'd be glad to. So all of those experiences sort of led me to thinking, well, maybe um, music might be the thing and maybe conducting might be the ticket. And your parents were excited about that and supportive, I assume? Uh, sort of, sort and not of. really. Uh, I, I was the first person in my family to consider going to college, except one aunt. Um, and she went to college and then ended up not doing anything with the degree. So my, my dad, it was a whole new experience to think that one of his kids would ever go to college. And with my mom, it would be a new experience, but they went along with it because of my, um, I think because of the opportunities that I had been given. I think they saw 
this is something that possibly could work, even though it was definitely out of their experience. And so you began to look at schools. What schools were you considering? Well, we, we finished the first quarter. I have to make sure since we're playing a basketball game that I acknowledge that. So oh, sounds <laughs> I, good. I, I get in a hurry. And it's such a great, <laughs> such a great story. So going, going to the second quarter would be college and early career. When you were looking at schools, what, what were you considering? Well, one of the things I thought was maybe um, I would have some family back in Iowa uh, even though I didn't know at that point that my parents would actually be transferred back to Iowa. So I thought maybe the University of Iowa, uh, during my junior year, um, they chose the top two GPAs of every school in the, the, the state, I guess, to uh, be firm in university scholars and go spend a couple days on campus and try to woo you. And so Furman was sort of on my list of things, of colleges. And, but I didn't apply to anything um, early on. And my choir director, Miss Gosnell, called me over one day and said, ask me the same question that you did. Steve, where are you going to school? And I said, well, maybe University of Iowa, maybe Furman, maybe University of South Carolina. I'm not sure. She said, no, you're not. You are going to go to Indiana University and I will write you letters and I will give you a scholarship. Whoa. And of course, I was a very well-behaved student and I said, okay, Ms. Costell. And <laughs> I was just fortunate at that time that Indiana University was um, holding off-campus auditions quite regularly. And there was one in Atlanta, which was an hour and a half or so, two hours from Spartanburg. And so I lined myself up an audition for them in a, a hotel in downtown Atlanta. Unfortunately, of course, I made the all South Carolina Allstate band. And it was the afternoon of the rehearsal prior to the Sunday concert. And in my complete naivete, I went to the conductor, Mr. Suddendorf, and said, um, I have this audition at Atlanta, and I would only miss two hours of rehearsal. Would that be okay? And uh, he said, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's fine. And I was his piccolo solo, so I thought it was interesting. And nobody talked to anybody in charge with the, the teachers. <laughs> and I was so naive, um, I, I realized now that should not have happened. But anyway, here we are driving uh, to Atlanta. We get to the downtown and I go up and here um, are two faculty members from Indy University. One was Elizabeth Mannion, the famous soprano, and one was George Bolette the famous pianist, but I didn't know either one of them. They could have been just people off the street. So I played my thing. And then George Bolette said to me, do you have your accompaniment of the Bach? And I said, oh, yes. Do you play? Well, I found out <laughs> later that he was the, one of the world's greatest interpreters of Franz Liszt. And it actually, his playing had been used as a soundtrack for a, a movie that had been made by Franz Liszt. He was extremely famous. And he was also very nice and said, yes, a little, 
<laughs> and so he accompanied on me on a box sonata and um, sure enough, I was accepted and, and I made it back in time to do the night rehearsal and uh, play the concert. And I guess nobody was ever the wiser. It says a lot about, <laughs> it, it, it says a lot about people like that. When you meet them, you didn't know who he was and, and, and you ask a question that someone that would be pompous would maybe be offended by. And, he just oh, treated you like a kid and well, a little bit. I play a little. Exactly. And Miss Mannion just smiled all the time. <laughs> I think they, that was her job was to sit there and smile. They probably laughed about it later, <laughs> I imagine. I'm sure they did. But I, I, I never was on the campus until summer orientation, which is the first time that I actually saw the campus at, in Bloomington. And so you did it after the conversation with your choir director, you just were being well behaved and there was no other search. So there was nothing. I didn't apply anywhere else, which goes against all the advice that I've ever given anybody from there on always apply to three or four places. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, but I was naive. No one in my family had ever gone to college before. There was, I had no, I was finding my own way. That's awesome. And now it's a business getting kids to search for colleges. I mean, you know, it's oh, yeah. changed so much. That's, that's again, great, great story. So, so you arrive on campus for the very first time um, with everything you have and you're moving into the dorm. Yep. And uh, my parents actually dropped me off before they left um, in front of the IU Auditorium, which is where the Marching Hundred rehearsed. Um, and that was the last I saw them until Thanksgiving, of course. And I went in and found myself as a member of the, one of the great marching bands in the country. At that point, Frederick Ebbs was still the director and Ray Kramer was the associate and Wilbur England was the associate uh, conductor. And um, Fred Ebbs only allowed one piccolo player to uh, perform uh, with the group because he felt that two is bad and three is worse. So um, <laughs> as it turns out, there was a junior or senior guy who had been a performance major who then switched to a music ed major and had the requirement of marching hundred. And so he had already been chosen as the piccolo player. So I carried a Big Ten flag in the pregame, and I actually I was assigned the Iowa flag, which was uh, likely. And then I only played piccolo on special occasions, like when they had the Stars and Stripes Forever and that kind of thing for that first year, which was um, very interesting, but I had to do everything that everybody else did for that. And then my second year, um, I was the piccolo soloist and any of the other flute players were either um, twirlers or um, carried the, the flag because that was before they actually had flags like we had, like are prominent today. These were just ceremonial flags that um, you carried around representing the Big Ten in pregame and you basically didn't do anything. 
So I wasn't following you for a moment, but that's because there was literally one piccolo on the field and there were no flute players. Yes. There was, wow. yes. And so I, I still remember when Ray, who was the director of my next year, uh, Fred Ebbs became uh, just the uh, director of bands and, and, and put Ray in charge of the marching band that second year said, well, we, there's a Carl King march we're going to do with a piccolo solo, so you'll have to memorize this fast. Here you go. Uh, see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so those kinds of experiences are, are always fun. And so what other ensembles did you get to play in during your undergrad? My first concert band experience was, was with Ray Kramer, which was, of course, um, fantastic is he was such a wonderful musician and such a wonderful conductor. And he could play, well, we played a lot of contemporary things, which were very unusual and probably were only played once <laughs> or twice or ever, but he could make you love it. <laughs> um, you know, it was one of those things that, um, because he passionately enjoyed, I remember there was one piece we played on the, Musical Arts Center stage where the band was divided into two groups. And so Ray was conducting one group in three, four time and the other, and Wilbur was conducting the other group in four, four time and they were supposed to match and, you know, the, those kinds of contemporary things. And we just all thought it was great. But I re remember playing things like La Fiesta Mexicana and really enjoying those things too. My sophomore year, then I was in the symphonic band with Mr. Ebbs, and of course, that was just a wonderful band. Um, went on tour and we played at Goshen College. And then we went into the state of Michigan, just north of the state line into this little town named Sturgis, Michigan. And we played in their municipal auditorium. And we warmed up downstairs in a little band room that was down there, needing a lot of renovation. And I remember the high school band director conducted a march as the host. You get a chance to do that. And never thinking I'd ever be back in that town. But that was a wonderful tour and enjoyed that. Also had an opportunity to then be in a, a, most of the orchestras uh, at IU, and including the, the Philharmonic, uh, which was uh, a wonderful experience. And in the summer, I actually played once in the summer orchestra on viola for the one of the Kiss Me Kate productions they had. So that was fun sort of bringing me back into that area of my life. But it was a great experience and I had a wonderful time um, growing as a conductor. When I graduated, I was a combination of Ray Kramer and Wolfgang Vaccano uh, and a little bit of Frederick Ebbs and all in one package because those were the people that I was emulating. And I was going to ask you about the directors of your groups. Did those, all those individuals really had a, a big impact on your time there for your undergrad? Yes. And a lot in, in different ways. Um, the, um, with, with Ray, um, his personality and his style of 
peeling the layers of the onion off and getting to the the insides of the music and then putting it back together was um, fascinating to watch. Uh, Frederick Ebbs was a, a, a very good musician and um, also knew how to rehearse very, very well. I, I played under a huge number of orchestral conductors, all of whom had their own uh, ways of doing things and their own sets of, of musicianship. But one of the best things for me was that when I started taking conducting, uh, the first class, my undergraduate level class was probably, I was probably a sophomore uh, or a first semester junior when you start that. But the, the class was so big, the teacher said, we, uh, we need some volunteers because this class is too big. And Mr. Ebbs over in the band department has volunteered to take a small class of you. Is there anyone who would like to volunteer? Well, before he got past the word anyone, my hand was already up because I had just witnessed the teaching that was going on and thought, we've got to get something better. And so I was lucky to be in uh, a conducting class that was led by Mr. Ebbs and um, Mr. Kramer instead of the, the the normal situation. And then in my senior year, you as at IU, if you have enough credits, you can, in your last semester, take a graduate level class. And so I did. I took the Frederick Ebbs' graduate level conducting class, was the only undergrad in it, and enjoyed that so very much. He uh, talked about repertoire, he talked about conducting, he talked about teaching. And at the end of the semester, he said, well, I'm going to let some of you, if you're interested, conduct the top band on a piece of your choice. Anybody interested? <laughs> and of course, several of us were, but not everybody, which shocked me. So I chose Festive Overture Shostakovich. And um, so we... We get to the end of the semester, and I got a chance to conduct Festive Overture by Dmitry Shostakovich with the top IU band. And, of course, they were great. They were just great. And we got to the end, and, and Mr. Ebbs said, hey, that went pretty well. There's time to do it again if you'd like. <laughs> and he was not like that at all, but, it, but I said, sure. And so I took it faster. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought at that day that I had peaked, that I had just conducted the best band that I ever would in my life. And everything from that point on was downhill. <laughs> and uh, it was sort of right for a while. <laughs> but what a great opportunity. But then I got back to my apartment and one of my four roommates was there. He was a euphonium player in the symphonic band. And he said, well, good job today, but you know, you can't do that stuff when you're in front of kids. I said, what stuff? And he said, well, all that facial expression stuff. <laughs> Which he, I was, he was wrong, I think. I yeah, think he was wrong. wrong. <laughs> wow. So, so when you were finishing up your time at IU, were you thinking teach for sure? Is, is your undergrad education or did you, with all the flute playing, did you have performance on your mind? Well, I was thinking teaching for sure because I had a lot of loans. 
that I needed to pay off immediately. And so getting a job was absolutely crucial. I, I didn't think that I wanted to do the performance thing. Um, I wanted to conduct. And the best way I saw to conduct and make money was to teach. I didn't know where except I had been spoiled by the two winters that I had spent in South Carolina and then Bloomington was a lot uh, warmer than Iowa. And I thought, well, as long as I teach somewhere south of Bloomington, I'll be happy in the winter. <laughs> well, <laughs> as it uh, turns out, um, I was at the end of my uh, career. I had just about um, uh, graduated, uh, finished classes, and was heading home to Iowa. And I had locked the door, the apartment. Um, I was going to come back for commencement. And the phone rang. <laughs> and I hesitated for just a minute. I thought, oh, I just, maybe it's not for me. I had other roommates there, but oh, maybe it's important. I should take a message for one of them. So I went back and answered the phone, and it was Ray Kramer on the line. And he said, Steve, I, I have a job that you might be interested in that I think would fit what you'd like to do. And he said, it's in Sturgis, Michigan. They have a great band tradition but they're looking for someone who can teach both strings and winds with a string and wind background. And so uh, here's the number you could call if you're interested. And I took the number down in the name of the principal and I put it in my pocket and thanked him and closed the door and thought, I don't want to teach in Michigan. <laughs> but being at home for just a little while and realizing that I had no other big options at that point, the market hadn't really started opening up yet. I gave this call and sure enough, I had, a, um, I had an interview almost immediately, drove to Sturgis, Michigan, not really realizing that it was in a different time zone at that point than Indiana or Iowa. But fortunately it was more than an hour early because I was just in time and had a two-day interview where I played the flute, I played viola, I rehearsed the 70-member uh, middle school beginning orchestra, and I rehearsed the high school band and ended up um, getting that, that job. So your job, search, your job search was very short. There was, there I applied was... one place. This and keeps happening to you, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It does. And, you know, it was sort of funny because I, I did everything, but then he said, we'd like you to connect the high school band. It was a very fine band. And so I, I was sitting in front, but he, he said, actually, I've changed my mind. I, I just want you to listen to the band. Okay. So then I'm sitting there listening and all of a sudden the phone rang and he said, oh, I've, I better get this, and handed me a baton. Who was this? Was this the, the retiring this director? The, or who well, was it was the high school director who conducted the high school orchestra and band, or would the next year. And okay. he, had, he had done the, was doing the high school uh, band uh, that semester. And so I looked at the band, and they looked at me, and there wasn't even, and I looked at the scores, and there was Sweet in E-flat. I thought, 
Okay, well, we'll do that. And the first thing I did was tell the percussion to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so then everybody got quiet and rehearsed. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, he came back out. Well, one of the percussionists a few years later said to me, Mr. Pratt, we we knew you were going to get the job because the other two people that came in, they didn't say anything to us about being quiet or paying attention, and they just let us walk all over them. (laughs) So uh, my uh, Dorman High School training uh, helped. So what was your first year like teaching at Sturgis? It was great um, because I had two things going for me. I was extremely energetic and desperately naive <laughs> about so much. Um, and yet the, the, there was such a strong tradition. Uh, the kids came in wanting to do well. Uh, they had been historically had done well. I had a, in February, I took my middle school band to um, district festival at the end of February, which is pretty early. <laughs> And um, the uh, sight reading judge was the principal who had hired me. (laughs) So (laughs) that put an interesting twist on it, but we uh, got straight ones and all that business and things were started well. And and the orchestra that was interesting because the middle school orchestra was absolutely huge. And if you remember that dingy little band room that... uh, we had warmed up in when the IU Symphonic Band toured and played in Sturgis. Well, that was my, that was my room. And they had put in fluorescent lights and had painted it and tried to clean it up for me. But it probably would have held 50 string players quite well. And I was teaching a seventh and eighth grade um, middle school orchestra that consisted of 72 people and which included seven troubadour harps. And uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't have very much harp training in my uh, undergraduate career. So I had to really fast learn about troubadour harps and particularly how to change the strings and that kind of thing. But those two years uh, flew by because, you know, enthusiasm and, and I learned so very much from all of my colleagues um, at the near the end of the second spring the assistant superintendent came to me and said we're going to make some changes we no longer feel that the high school director can do both orchestra and band and at the high school so we're going to reconfigure and you need to choose now before the board meeting tonight if you are going to teach all the bands or all the orchestras, high school and middle school, one, one way or the other. <laughs> well, I loved teaching high school, middle school strings and I would have loved teaching that high school orchestra, but I knew that my colleague was better at orchestra than at band. And so I made the decision at that point, which was pivotal in my life, to become the director of bands in Sturgis and and give up the string teaching. Um, And uh, so that set things off in a whole new direction. What are some of your favorite memories from your your time in Sturgis? 
Well, uh, the, the first one was being on the field with my first high school band. And this is at the end of district festival when they're announcing the scores. And the Sturgis High School marching band had never in the history of the program since I think it was 1926, had never gotten anything but a first division at the Michigan State Band and Orchestra Association festivals. And when they said that we had gotten a one, I was very relieved. Yeah, we all <laughs> so, had that feeling, that's for sure. <laughs> that was a great experience. I do remember a couple of times we had some great opportunities. Uh, one was the director of bands at Ball State called me up and they were doing a tour um, and we're, we're going to go through Southern Michigan and wondered, he had heard about the Sturgis program and wondered if we could host them. Was this Mr. Dunn? No, it was the uh, person after him, James oh. Arrowwood. Okay. And he was there for a few years before uh, Dr. McConnell, was it? Yeah, Roger McConnell. Yeah, Roger yeah. McConnell. Uh, but anyway, he, he's, uh, we weren't able to host him. I was so sorry. I said, we'd be glad to, but there was something, you know, a basketball tournament or something. And he said, well, while you're on the phone, would you be willing to bring your symphonic band down to Ball State? We're having this, this um, composer's thing where we bring in some high school bands and Karel Husa is going to be there. And I said, well, what's, what's the date? And I looked and I said, yeah, I think I, I think I could. I have to get permission, of course. And he said, well, w you'd have to do something by Karel Husa. And I thought, oh, what could we do by Karel Husa? But um, so I thought of the easiest thing that I knew by Karel Husa and um, mentioned that to him. He said, no, that one's already taken, but no one has taken music for Prague yet. <laughs> and no, I was naive but not that naive I said well maybe a movement or two he said fine do it and so then I ordered the score <laughs> well that movement or two turned out to be the drum roll into the last movement and believe me that's plenty but we did the uh, last movement music for Prague with Karel Husa in the audience we also did an Alfred Reed piece or something and I was just so pleased because the the, the symphony band really stepped up. We had to order tuba mutes. I mean, it was that kind of thing. And they really stepped up and, and played it well, but it was held together with shoestring and band-aids, if you know what I mean. If I didn't cue Mike at letter three, I, or number three, I don't think he would have come in. So we get to the end and Karel Husa's on the microphone and he comes up on his stage and he said, Oh, so good. So nice. Thank you. Uh, what would you like? Shall I conduct your group in some way? And I, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's the last thing I want. So I said, Mr. Husa, could you tell me the story, tell my students the story of music for Prague? And I thought, well, that would fill the time. And he, so he, he started off, and the kids were just spellbound. And he said, let me now tell you about this music, about my country, where I come from. And he told them the story of music for Prague and how where the Soviet tanks came in and where the people were yearning for freedom. And, 
And I thought things are going well. My kids are really eating this up. And he gets the end of the story. And then he says, but now I must conduct a group. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, letter E. And they're all just like frantically trying to find letter E. And then he starts. And I don't know if you've ever seen Karel Husa. He was a wonderful person, but a wild conductor. And he started and by golly, they followed him. (laughs) And he gets to the end. And it was magnificent. And afterwards, the kids all gathered around him and said, Mr. Husa, can you come to visit us in Sturgis? My grandfather would love to, you know, all those things. And so that's the kind of thing that is very, very meaningful. That's, yeah, that's just speechless, I'm sure. You're probably just uh, like a proud, proud father <laughs> of those kids. <laughs> yes, and also really, really happy. It's sort of like when when your own child plays its state soul and ensemble and they finally get to the end and you realize that you've been holding onto the desk so hard that there are uh, fingerprints in the wood (laughs) because you want them to do so well, but you're just, yeah, that's how I felt. So when you were, when you were kind of deciding what you were going to do next with grad school and, and, and your, your things are going really well in Sturgis, how did that process work for you to make the decision that it was time to, to move on to grad school? Well, it was pretty easy because we had this thing at Sturgis after seven years um, you could you could take one year off on sabbatical. You did not get any pay, but they continued to contribute to your um, retirement plan. And I think major medical, although I was young and I never went to the doctor, so that, that didn't matter. But I was allowed to take the leave with the promise that I would have my job back. So I was gone for a year. I had been to the University of Michigan for two summers prior to that. And so I was able to complete my master's in flute performance and conducting um, within one year. And during that spring, um, my flute professor, who was a fantastic person, um, was um, wanting me desperately, or at least he was selling me pretty hard, to be his associate instructor in the fall. And he was offering me an AI ship and he was offering me a fellowship on top of that. But even with in-state tuition, I looked at how much I was already in debt and I realized that I would run out of money sometime in March, (laughs) which would not have got me to the end of the school year. So I eventually had the courage to tell him no even though I had been accepted into the doctoral program, it was all set to go. Um, But I went back to Sturgis for one year and was sort of assuming that I would do that for a much longer time. What are some of your memories from, from your your year at Michigan? You had summers, but that year that you were there daily, I'm sure, um, had some fun memories. Well, it was huge. I, I took the, I did the master's in flute performance because it was a very liberating degree. You, you had lessons and you had, you played an ensemble and then everything else you built what you wanted to do. So I had um, marching band uh, techniques with uh, Glenn Richter in the summer 
who had later became the director of the Texas Longhorn Marching Band. And I had, um, uh, of course, um, wonderful flute lessons, but I also took uh, choral conducting and I took a, a conducting class that allowed us to uh, explore orchestral conducting, operatic conducting, and wind conducting. And I still remember one of my fellow graduate students was from China, and he later became one of the leading orchestral conductors in China. But when we got to the operatic place, it was uh, to do some scenes from Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. He turned to me and said, oh, I don't do this language thing well with the singing. Would you take my spot too? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I got a chance to work with the operatic people and the orchestra people and, the, and of course, the band uh, people. But the biggest influence, besides my flute lessons, where I, I was being taught music, more than technique at that point, but phrasing and, and musical concepts by this wonderful flute professor. But I also was in rehearsal with H. Robert Reynolds um, every day uh, as, and as much as possible. When I was there, I played in the symphony band and uh, was um, in his group paying attention as a player, but more as a conductor. And I consider that I have two conducting mentors mostly in my life, Ray Kramer and H. Robert Reynolds. And um, it, it was more than a game to me. It was trying to anticipate what he would rehearse next whenever he stopped. And occasionally I got it right. And other times he took me into places that I would not have thought of. So it was a tremendous musical growing experience that was unmatched. And then I was the kind of person is, you know, I had been a high school band director. I had all this time on my hands now as a student after I practiced my three hours a day, how much time did I have? So I went to other rehearsals and I, I watched the young Jerry Junkin rehearse the uh, concert band. And I, I watched the young Carl St. Clair conduct the second orchestra in daily rehearsals. So I was watching all of these great conductors as well as being conducted by a great conductor for a year. And so that was a tremendous growing experience from a conducting standpoint, as well as a rehearsal and musical depth standpoint. Imagine after your daily high school band life for seven years, although it was tremendously hard work, it was almost like going to summer camp, like just to watch all these people would just be a, such a treat. Well, it was. And of course, you know, the first semester, sorry, the first month, I would also feel this tremendous urge to be the last person out of the room to turn off the lights and lock the door. And I realized <laughs> I didn't have to do that. <laughs> uh, so, so then you did go back to Sturgis then um, for one year, you said. For, for one year, I did. And um, was thinking at some point, well, maybe the Ann Arbor Huron job would open up, which 
maybe at some point I would be ready to do something like that. But I had no plans or intentions of leaving Sturgis. In fact, we, my wife and I, Darlene, were, were getting married uh, that summer. And so it was just really focused on that. And the people in Sturgis were thrilled because not only was I getting married and they were happy for me, but they were also getting a clarinet instructor for, <laughs> for the students. And um, so things were looking that way. And then sometime in late May or early June, I got this phone call from Ray Kramer. And he said, Steve, you know, we have an opening here at IU. Uh, Mr. Ebbs is retiring. And I said, yes, I know. Who have you hired? And he said, well, we're still in that process, but you haven't applied yet. And I said, oh, well, <laughs> I hadn't really thought of it. He said, well, you should think about it. <laughs> so once again, being the, um, the, the student who wants to say yes, I did apply. And I had a, a friend who was the uh, local music representative come in to me this couple of days afterwards. I mentioned to him, he said, well, you don't have a chance at that, you know. And I said, I know, but I think it'll be great just to have a chance to conduct the summer band and this. And, and so um, I was, uh, I chose, I had to uh, conduct Lincolnshire Posey. And I knew we had that in the files and I ordered the other piece and I got that. Then I went back in the files and there were no scores for Lincolnshire Posey because previous conductors had appropriated them. So in pre preparation for this audition, I took the parts in my living room and put them around me in a circular way and studied the score through the parts. And I didn't, when I arrived at the campus at IU, I said to Ray, could I borrow a score? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure he was like flummoxed at that point, but it turned out okay. As it turned out, my audition was the day, was the 5th of July. I had done the Sturgis Municipal Band concert and the fireworks on the 4th of July and drove half of the way down after that and then drove the rest of the way down to Bloomington, got out of the car, Ray was already waiting for me because we had five minutes to get to the first interview. And so I ran to that and then uh, had a chance to look over that score for an hour and conducted the summer band in that rehearsal. And I thought things went pretty well, but I knew that the other two candidates had collegiate experience and completed doctorates. So for me, I thought this is just for me to enjoy. And so I had fun during the rehearsal as much as I could, trying to not be too nervous. And uh, then the next day drove um, to uh, Crown Point, St. John, Indiana, where we met with the the minister, and then we were married on Saturday, went on our honeymoon, and I had given our uh, hotel address, or sorry, phone number to two people. One was to Darlene's mother, and the other was to Ray Kramer, just in case, but didn't hear a thing. So then we, uh, we came back from our honeymoon, and I, I was thinking, I've got to start writing the show <laughs> for Sturgis because I haven't heard from 
uh, you at all. And we were sitting in the living room talking with Darlene's mother about uh, the mini golf we'd done and the beach and all that kind of thing. And then suddenly she said, oh, Steve, there, there was a man named Dean who had called for you and wants you to call him back. And I said, oh, I don't know anybody named Dean. But I looked at the note and sure it was Dean Webb from the School of Music. And I called him and then he offered me the job as assistant professor at the IU School of Music. And um, I uh, decided to take that. And we had just a, a week or so, I went to, we went to Blue Lake where I was conducting one of the festival bands there. And during that time, put a payment down on our new house. And by the middle of August was beginning a career at IU that I thought would be a couple of years before I had to take a sabbatical and finish my doctorate. And it turns out that um, I ended up staying there. That's, that's just a lot of fun to hear. And just the connections uh, with your, you know, with Ray and people like that, that kind of brought you back to Bloomington. Well, we're going to pause just for a minute before we talk about your IU time as a teacher, but uh, we're at halftime now. And I had warned you that as a band director, of course, it's nothing new to you that, of course, the band director provides the halftime entertainment. So um, I ask you to pick your favorite piece and explain why. Just share with us why you chose it and any special performances you've had of it, times conducting it, if you have a favorite recording, anything like that. What did you pick for us today? Well, as you know, this is the hardest question that you ask. It's sort of <laughs> like asking who is your favorite child um, because everything's my favorite while I'm doing it. So I had to come up with what piece maybe influenced me a lot through all aspects of everything. And it came out, I was a little surprised. It was Elsa's procession to the cathedral by Wagner, arranged by Lucien Callier. And I, I remember hearing that on the radio with the South Carolina All-State Band playing it the year before I was in it, conducted by Ravelli. And so I bought this record by Ravelli of the University of Michigan, and sure enough, Elsa's procession was on it. It was after their uh, Carnegie Hall performance after their Soviet Union tour. And so that was very meaningful. Then my senior year, I was in the Western District Allstate, and then you had auditions out of that to go on to Allstate. And sure enough, we played Elsa's procession to the cathedral there, and I played the flute solo. So that's the first time that I had played it. The conductor was a wonderful musician, that same tuba player from Cincinnati Symphony, who had had a fantastic high school program of his own at Jekyll Island, Georgia, that was nationally famous. He appeared in the Reader's Digest even at one point. He was a very tall man and he was rehearsing on the stool. Well, during the dress rehearsal, when we got to that great place where the trombones come in just before the big last time through the tune, for the very first time in any rehearsal, he stood up, all six foot three of him, 
and the brass opened up with this sound like I had never heard. Now, of course, as a flute player right there, I'm just trilling. <laughs> but no, I wasn't. I was at that point a trombonist in my head. And it was just, it just sent shivers up and down my spine. And so, boy, that was tremendous. I even have a cassette recording where I'm at home in the kitchen and I'm hearing that Elsa's procession of the cathedral is going to be being played by some band on the radio. So I get out the little cassette player and I'm, and I'm recording this and my dog happens to walk in with her dog tags chinking. And you can still hear me throwing the dog down on the floor, keeping her quiet for the rest of Elsa's procession of the cathedral so there wouldn't be extraneous percussion sounds in that recording. So when I got to Sturgis High School, every other year or so, we would get out Elsa's procession of the cathedral and we would read through it. But I never wanted to do it if it couldn't be done exceedingly well. And you know, there are some woodwind keys there that are pretty special. So the first time I got to conduct it was with the second band at IU, Symphonic Band, in one of my first concerts. And that was just so fun because they could do it. It was not the hardest thing on the program. But I was doing it sort of as a legacy. And then I did it one last time with the wind ensemble towards the end of my time at IU. And that was a fantastic time with those players. So that piece has been part of who I was and actually sort of inspired me to want to conduct that piece. I even did it on the marching field any number of times. Bob Reynolds had done a marching band uh, arrangement of that, which is really good and has all the best parts. And I remember my high school band members playing that and the trombone players coming up and saying, hey, this Wagner guy, he's pretty good. Does he do any, anything else? Because they were hooked on Wagner. So lots of connections to that piece for you. Yes, which is why I ended up choosing it. Now, I could have chosen 30 others too, but that, that one I think probably fit the bill in this case. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. So we're going to move on to IU now. We're back to IU in your case, right? So what was it like for you? I mean, you had all these connections as far as your memories of being there uh, before you taught. And of course, mentors of yours there waiting for you. What was it like transitioning to IU? Well, um, in, in some ways, it was made easier by the fact that I knew my way around and I knew how things worked and I knew how the students felt about things and I knew which way to go on the one-way streets and all that business, that all helped. But the first thing that happened when I got there was Frederick Ebbs um, passed away. And it was um, in the first month and a half of, of me being there, I had replaced him in a sense, but he had promised Ray that he would in his retirement be sort of the behind the scenes person organizing the summer music clinic because he had run it for years. Ray had never really been involved with it behind the scenes. 
Darlene had been the camp secretary, so that helped when he passed away, and all of a sudden, Ray and I were in charge of this very wonderful music camp that we didn't know how to do. <laughs> and so um, that helped because I, I had been on the faculty of Summer Music Clinic teaching flute and conducting for quite a few years, and Darlene had done bass clarinet and woodwinds and had been the camp secretary. So we had some good knowledge and we helped or get that organized for the uh, for the, the following summer. So that that sort of helped integrate in. Um, but the fact of suddenly being co a colleague with your high school band directors, with with your flute teachers, with your theory teachers, you can see how that was an interesting uh, development. But um, most of my life was spent uh, in the band department itself and, and uh, that felt pretty comfortable because I knew how that was going. The difference was high school teaching to college teaching is very, is very similar in terms of your rehearsals except uh, just at a sort of a different pacing. But not too many of us teaching high school ever lectured or had lecture classes or seminars where you were lecturing. And here I was uh, teaching um, a methods course where I lectured every day. Fortunately, it was the pre-student teaching course of how to be a band director, how to be an orchestra director. And here's everything you haven't learned yet before you go out to student teach. It was fantastic because the students were so hungry for that information and it was so fresh for me. And here's where the advantage of my moving around the country and seeing how different places started instruments and how different places recruited and how different places were organized helped because I could give a wider range of experience to the classes. Um, but the most important thing I wanted them to be when they left my class was to, to love music teaching and to be successful as a teacher. And that, that was always the goal. I wanted to spark them to be prepared for their student teaching. So that, that was a wonderful class uh, to teach. And then eventually I was teaching the second level of undergraduate conducting and uh, and that was a lot of fun um, because when you teach conducting, you have to learn how to teach conducting. And that was a great brain exercise for me, particularly knowing that anything that I taught, those students would then be in my rehearsal watching to see if I was doing what I said. And so it was a great motivational uh, experience for me too. A lot of people know about your your time with the wind ensemble and things like that because there may be more recent graduates. Um, but the marching hundred was something that you were very involved with. What was it like running a Big Ten band like that? Well, the first thing was when I was hired, it was to be the assistant director, and um, my job was to take attendance and chart pregame. And I was fine with that. But I had no intention, no desire, no long-term plan to ever be the 
director of the Marching Hundred. That was for someone else to do. Well, then it turns out, after being the assistant for two years, that suddenly it was either I was going to do it or Ray was going to do it, and he was my boss. <laughs> so I became the director of the Marching Hundred, and, and I did that for seven years. I had the great advantage of, um, of course, having been the assistant for two years, of knowing sort of how things were going. And we did hire people, um, Joe Herman uh, and then Kevin Cassins, and they did the, um, the drill writing. And I did the musical stuff because I was still teaching my full course load. We didn't change anything there. And uh, so I was also an advantage that we started winning football. <laughs> and now I took the band to five bowl games within the seven years of my leading the band. So that was huge. It was very challenging to organize bowl trips um, with a very limited budget and no internet. So everything was long distance or U.S. Postal Service, but we had some marvelous times. We actually won a couple of those bowl games and the, the marching band size um, stabilized and then grew. And one of the things that I've always remembered is that the memories that those students had in those seven years or the nine years are amongst the strongest memories they have of their time at IU. And they are constantly reminding me of things that I said or things I don't remember saying or things I'm really sure I said, but they remembered it, so that's okay, that really affected their lives. And so I, I, I still would walk across campus thinking, well, who's Who's the marching band director now? You wait a minute, I am. <laughs> because it was just suddenly so big a deal. Uh, it took a while to wrap my head around that. But it, it was an, an excellent time, but it finally got to the place where my teaching schedule was so huge. And I inherited then also being the director of the summer music clinic. And I started organizing the uh, wind conducting workshops. And so it was just too much for, for me to continue doing. So at that point, we were able to hire David Woodley, and he became the marching band director in 1993. And I was then the associate director of bands and conducted the uh, symphonic band, it was called by then, that time. So you had several titles through your time at IU with assistant and associate, and of course head director, could you kind of walk me through how your roles changed over the years? Well, I'm probably one of the only people who ever will have this experience, but I conducted every band at one time or another that IU offered. Because <laughs> I did the third band for a while. I did the second band for a while. I did the top band for a while. Uh, Ray kept going on sabbatical, which was wonderful for him. And he, he well deserved it. And then that gave me a chance to be acting director of bands and work with the wind ensemble during those times. Um, and I did the uh, basketball pep band up through my, my last real time was the, when we won the national championship in New Orleans 
at the Superdome with the Keith Smart last shot. Uh, that was the last NCAA trip I took. The next year, um, Kevin Castens and I shared the basketball band during the fall. Then Ray went on sabbatical and Kevin did the basketball band from then on. So in a sense, I sort of went out with the national championship, which was sort of, sort of nice. So then you uh, eventually being head director, um, do you have any favorite memories just from your time that you could share with us? Well, a few. Um, one was um, conducting the uh, wind ensemble at the National CBDNA, College Band Directors National Association uh, Conference in Ann Arbor at Hill Auditorium. And I had conducted at Hill my very first year of teaching. I, I, I conducted Russian Sailor's Dance with the Sturgis High School Orchestra as a guest conductor. And I had taken our high school band, the symphony band, Sturgis Symphony Band, to Ann Arbor for the um, Music Educators Convention performance in Hill Auditorium. And I had guest conducted a couple of former students' bands when they played at Hill Auditorium. And then I got a chance to take the wind ensemble there. So again, it was sort of a reflection of from my first year on of coming back home, never thinking that I would have a college band playing in the wonderful acoustics of Hill Auditorium for that national uh, convention. And it, it was just a, a really wonderful time. I also had the chance to conduct the wind ensemble in Milwaukee at the final MENC convention because then they changed their name to NAFMA and sort of changed how they did things. So we sort of closed the book on that, played in um, uh, the Schemerhorn Center, the home of the Nashville Symphony for another national CBDNA convention. A real top memory is playing in Clues Hall at the ABA convention with the, with the IU um, wind ensemble. The ABA is, is a little different because you take your group there, but every piece is conducted by a guest conductor except one or two. And so, of course, I called immediately all the best conductors that I could. To, I trusted with the group that had an IU connection, and including Ray Kramer. Um, and then I conducted the final piece because it's, it is a little interesting being backstage listening to your group performing in front of a national audience, um, conducted by people who've gone through the piece once or twice, but they were magnificent. And that was a, a wonderful, wonderful memory. And then of course, uh, the, our trip to Carnegie Hall, uh, we were the first IU ensemble to play on the main stage at Carnegie Hall. And it was a, a wonderful time. Uh, the performance went well. The, uh, the the people in the audience were, which included several high school bands and several college bands, as well as people off the street, I'm sure, um, kept kept applauding. And um, 
the, uh, the hosts had told me, if we go past 10 o'clock, we start to pay uh, the union route uh, double time, overtime. And so I was concerned. I, so there were four ovations and I came backstage and they hadn't stopped. And the, I looked at the person and she said, oh, go ahead, we'll pay the extra money. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, went out again and took the bows, and I was just so pleased uh, for our students being able to play in Carnegie Hall because for so many of them, that was a bucket list thing. You know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, practice, practice? The first note that we played in our half an hour warm-up, we just stopped and listened to the reverb. The acoustics were so phenomenal. It, it was a performance. It was a, an occasion that um, we will never forget. I know I'll never forget. And I happened, just, just happened that my brother and sister-in-law happened to be in New York City for something else. And they were able to attend. And then quite a few IU alums were in the audience. It made a very, very special occasion. And then my final memory was my retirement concert, which um, it, uh, we had eight rehearsals to prepare for that. We had done the, uh, uh, the whole, uh, well, some, some big pieces earlier in the semester, but put together that final concert and the, the wind ensemble students were just wonderful. And uh, the audience turned out wonderful. And for that concert, I was able to put together some pieces that were meaningful to me in ways that the audience would never have known, but it gave me an opportunity to sort of wind up my career, at least as a college professor, hopefully not as a conductor. And those are my best memories. Well, those are great to hear. A couple of questions as I kind of wrap up this, this quarter here. Um, you mentioned a many wonderful people in our chat today is but could you pick a colleague that you think had the most impact on your life well since you um you said colleague that of course is ray ray kramer um if you had said a college professor i would have said ray kramer if you had said you know a, a rehearsal technician i would have said ray kramer but to have the opportunity to work side by side with him. And, you know, we went through any number of things. They're, not everything is always perfect, um, but we got through them together and we got through wonderful things together and shared so much. And for me to be able to see him on a daily basis, working with people, interacting with people, being a role model for all of his former students, I realized that I was in the catbird seat. I was where every IU alum would have loved to have been for 10 minutes, let alone for the 20 years or more that we worked together. So he definitely had a huge experience, uh, huge influence on my life with so many different experiences. And he and Molly, uh, as um, representatives of the kinds of people you would want to be that Darlene and I would want to model after? Um, that's an easy question. Well, I'm not surprised at your answer. <laughs> um, my next question, 
if you could pick one event or a week or something and get in a time machine and just go back and redo it, could you pick one? Um, I think I wouldn't um, because um, there are always things that you think you could do better, but there are also a lot of things that went a lot better than you thought. So in some ways it all balances it out. I had an opportunity about four, was it four or five years ago now, to step back into my time machine because I had the chance to conduct that same South Carolina All-State Band in the same rehearsal hall, in the same auditorium, with the same amount of rehearsal time as I had had as a member of that group prior to auditioning for IU. And so that sort of brought me back. And so one of my thoughts was, what if one of those flutes comes to me and says that they have an audition, could they miss rehearsal? <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to do that. It was a great experience going back, but at the same time, I realized that I had grown and I, there's no reason to ever need to look back. You always look forward. It, it's also that it's very similar to the challenge I always had. So when I would go to a convention or to the Chicago convention, I would carry with me in my pocket a list of the pieces that I had conducted previously that fall. Because people would often ask, what have you been doing? And I could not remember because I was already thinking and studying what I was doing the next semester. I, my mind would just simply move forward. And during the spring, I would quite often be looking at 40 or 50 scores, different scores, because I would be working with high school bands and doing clinics or doing all-state or district groups or something. I'd, I would always need to be looking forward and never looking back. And one of the strange things that I decided to do when I first got to IU is that I wanted to not ever fall into the trap of repeating the same music over and over. Well, so I just kept learning new scores and new scores, and there was always more to do. Then it got to the point where I was looking forward to retirement thinking, you know, I'd like to do this piece once again or that piece once again. And so I started repeating a few, um, and they were almost always pieces that the military service bands used for their auditions because that was always good for our students to be playing pieces they would be auditioning on later on. So that constant looking forward became a habit. And um, so that's sort of what I've always done all my life is not to dwell, but to look forward to see what was happening. At the same time, I never really planned ahead. Well, I want to do this by such and such a time. No, that wasn't me. I was someone who took opportunities when they came, but I didn't ever really plan to do them. All right, that's very interesting to hear your take on that. So we're gonna to go to the fourth quarter now. This one's gonna go by pretty quickly. This will be pretty fast paced. So, okay. all right, I think you'll enjoy this. So these questions require quick, Yes or no responses. You might be picking one item over another. 
And for the sake of today, what you pick wins. So the other, for the sake of our interview, is gone um, from the band world. Sounds, sounds like a big deal, I know. Not too much pressure. Um, <laughs> some might be difficult to answer, but you just need to answer it and kind of go with it. And, and we'll okay. see how it goes. Are you ready? I will, I will try to not dissemble too much. All right. Well, here we go. Alto clarinets. You have to have them or let's move on and get rid of them from the concert band. You have to have them for certain pieces. And if you have too many clarinets, it's a good utility. But generally, no. Okay, you're not very good at this, Steve. I know. <laughs> okay. All right. Next up. I'll try, try some easier ones. Tubas in a center or tubas on the con conductor's right? You can't say it depends on the piece. You just have to pick one. Yeah, I'm going to go conductor's right. Okay, flutes, conductors left, conductors right. Here, I'm different <laughs> from the rest of the world because I'm a flutist. I know where the sound comes from. They're on my left. They're on your left. Okay, tuning the band from the top or the bottom? Bottom to the top. At contest, should a march be required? Yes. Okay, this is going to be hard for you. Which is better, Hulse first suite or Hulse second suite? Uh, Holst first is better for the band <laughs> ensemble. Okay, okay. This, you're going to have a hard time with these, I'm telling you. Okay, so pick a composer. Between Sousa and King, whose music gets to still exist? Well, it has to be Sousa. Okay. If you don't have a harp, can you program a piece that calls for the harp to be covered on an electronic keyboard? Yes. If yes. You have an ear to make it sound like a harp. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next school you're going to be teaching again. Okay. And you get to pick. You're going to be directing a Big Ten marching band or a Big Ten basketball pep band. Which one do you sign up for? Well, if I'm at a good basketball school, it's going to be the pep band. Okay. All right. Musicals. Ready? Yep. Which one do you want to survive? The Music Man or West Side Story? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. First musical I ever conducted was The Music Man, so I'm going to have to go with that. Okay. Here's another pick a composer. Who gets to survive after our interviews? Their music, at least. Persichetti or Hindemith? Sorry, Vincent. Paul Hindemith. Okay. This will be a fun one. Plastic instruments. Secretly think they're sort of cool or ban them forever. Ban them forever. Okay. Star Spangled Banner Tempo. On the slow side or on the fast side? Uh, right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> but not too slow. Okay, not too slow. Not too slow. Okay, you're programming program a march in your in your program on on a normal situation, first or last? Uh, as an encore, last. Okay. Breathe with your band on the prep or don't breathe with your band on the prep? Silent breathe. Okay. Okay, this is going to be hard for you. I have to apologize in advance, but I'm going to throw it out there for you. Lincoln Sharaposi. Oh, you know all the movements. 
all six yeah. of them. You have to get rid of one movement. Which would you would you pick? That you, you if you have to rule one out. Uh, Rufford Park poachers. Number three. Okay. Because everybody else does. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're no one's gonna hold any grudges here. Okay, two more, two more for you. Okay. S sleigh ride or Russian Christmas music? Which gets to survive? Uh, sleigh ride, probably better. Yeah. Okay. And last question for me: most bizarre instrument you've used in a concert band performance? Bagpipes. Bagpipes. And that was the piece just a few years ago, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, that was uh, Michael Shelley's piece yeah. that won the big uh, award called The End of the World. Yeah, I was taking lessons from you when you were studying that score, and we chatted about that a little bit. Well, yeah. those are my questions. I don't know. I, I, I gave the op option for some questions for me, but I don't know if you have any questions for me. But if you have anything you want to shoot out at me, I'm happy to take them, or we can just reflect here. Well, I think just for for me, uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you, because um, I'm retired now, have been for two years, and you have when you when you retire, you you forget. Oh yeah, that happened, or oh yeah, that happened, uh, because you're always so busy doing other things. So, getting the chance to reflect, um, like you have asked me to do today has been uh, really wonderful, mostly because it brings to mind the students, the great students that I had to work with. I was so lucky. I had basically two jobs in my life, if you don't count Target one summer, and we won't do that. Um, I had great students at Sturgis. Uh, I had great students, of course, at IU. Some of the world's best players. So here we are in this time of where we can't leave our houses. And I've had an opportunity, as a lot of us have, to watch live streams. And I watch the Philadelphia Orchestra and I see two former students sitting there playing, or I watch the Marine Band and I see former students playing. But that makes me think of all those other students who are teachers and who have just done so well and who meant so much to me. So this kind of experience is great because it brings back those kinds of memories. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you. It's it's a lot of fun. I feel lucky that I've gotten to talk to you in the past about different things that you know when you've come out to work with my groups or get lucky enough to sit next to you at a at a dinner. And it's always a lot of fun. But this has been a a, a blast for me too today. So thank you for taking time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for the experience. That concludes our third episode of the Real Deal. A special thanks to Mr. Pratt for agreeing to talk with me today. The Real Deal is hosted by me, Rick Granlund. This episode was edited and mixed by Connor Granlund. Our theme song is March of the Steelmen, performed by the 2009 Isma State Concert Band Champions, the North Central Wind Ensemble. Thank you for taking time to listen to The Real Deal podcast today. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RealDealPodIN. And make sure to subscribe for more interviews coming soon.